0: Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otega Wagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's show, I'm talking to the writer Anna Wiener, who is a contributing writer to The New Yorker Online, where she writes about Silicon Valley, startup culture and technology. More specifically, we're talking about her book, Uncanny Valley, which I read well over a year ago and have been wanting to discuss on the podcast ever since. So I'm really thrilled to have her on the show today. Uncanny Valley tells the story of Anna's time working in Silicon Valley during her mid to late 20s. And despite the tech world setting, it really is an every woman's story about what it's like to work in an industry that is notoriously unwelcoming to women. Anna's book touches on everything from casual sexism and emotional labour in the workplace, why your work will never be your family, and the lies that companies often tell their employees. It's also a brilliant exploration of the often toxic nature of tech startups and the ethical quandaries that many of those companies are struggling to address. I found so many parallels between my early career experiences and Anna's, despite the fact I've never set foot in a tech company, and I'm sure you will too, no matter your line of work. And, as well as being incredibly insightful, Uncanny Valley is also an exquisitely written memoir, and extremely funny. I absolutely tore through it, and I'm sure you will too. Here's my conversation with Anna. I actually first heard about your book when I interviewed Gia Tolentino about Trick Mirror when that came out back in 2019. And just before we started recording, we were talking about toxic startup culture. I think there'd been like a recent expose, I can't remember which company it was. And I said to her, I was like, God, I'd really love to read a book that really dives into why so many startups have a toxic culture. And when these stories come out, you know, they're toxic in exactly the same sort of way. And she was like, oh, you should read Uncanny Valley. Like it's coming out next year, like request a proof. And I looked it up and we had the same publisher. And I was like, it felt like kismet. So I've really been excited about your book for a really long time. And I guess that is actually the first question I have for you, is why you think that... A lot of startups, I think, and especially within the tech industry, not all, but certainly quite a few of them. What is it about them that tends to foster these slightly toxic cultures that end up boiling over into these big media exposés?
1: Hmm. Right. When you said that there had been some exposé of toxic startup culture, but you couldn't remember which one, I was thinking that's very revealing in and of itself, that we have a whole menu to choose from from the last few years. Exactly. Exactly. I think that there are a lot of different reasons. There's the context of the Bay Area and the history of the Bay Area and this geographic explanation. I would say that there's also something about the culture of technology itself in which things are always changing and building on each other. And often there's a sort of emphasis on the new thing, the fastest thing. And that tends to tie into an emphasis on youthful engineers, on the young representing the cutting edge. But I think really at the core of all of it is the business model. I think that the business model of startups tends to drive the culture in a lot of different ways. And I think it's just really hard to talk about startup culture and its toxicity without talking about the economic incentives and financing structure of Silicon Valley. I don't know how deep into that you want to go.
0: I want to get very deep into that. And I want to understand what you mean, because I presume what you're talking about is VC culture and the fact that these Companies, often very small, run by young people who don't have a huge amount of management experience or training, they are flooded with a shit ton of cash, and they also have very aggressive growth metrics to meet.
1: Is that what you mean? Totally. And I think that the sort of mainstream narrative about startup cultures has focused on the excesses, I think. The toys in the office and the fancy cafeterias and the playfulness of the culture. And I think that's sort of what I was gesturing toward when I mentioned the Bay Area specifically. I think some of that comes from the countercultural idea that technology companies and startups in particular are doing business differently. Most of that has to do with keeping people in the office. And Mm. this, what I would consider a fairly toxic combination of work and play and life and the personal and the professional all coming to a head in these workplaces. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is, as you were saying, it's driven by the funding model, which, you know, emphasizes rapid growth and scale and major software margin returns. The whole conversation about disruption, which was really, I think, at its peak when I entered the industry in late 2012, to early 2013, that's just about overturning a sector to then become a monopoly in that sector.
0: And so Mm. there's
1: really no way to become a monopoly without massive global scale. Or I guess it could be domestic, too. I'm being a little bit hyperbolic. See, it's very hard not to fall into, like, the rhetoric of this industry. I don't know if you find yourself falling into that trap, but I'm always talking about scale in that way. No,
0: I mean, I think the word scale is, and I want to come on to the language that you use within tech, but what you've said has actually reminded me, because now I look at Facebook or or Google, or any of the big four tech companies, whatever. And they are very much like the industry big boys and they're very established. And I would think of them as being pretty traditional-ish employers. But 10 years ago, these were the kind of new kids on the block or even 15 years ago, they were the new kids on the block. This is where you went if you wanted to have a slightly experimental, non-traditional career. And it's interesting how quickly... That's changed and and how quickly they've consolidated their positions within various industries because Google is not the new kid on the block anymore.
1: Totally. And I think that there is something incredibly seductive both about that workplace culture and the narrative around the workplace culture. I guess for me, part of why I wanted to write my book was to separate that narrative and that playful image from the reality of the business like at the end of the day this is just cosmetic i think in a lot of ways it's or it's an aesthetic difference and i think that where this really comes into focus is like the ideal customer for a lot of tech companies is the us government right like is the military is mm-hmm. the defense department so i think that you can have these playful fun bring your whole self to work workplaces but Where the money is coming from is not particularly counter-cultural or anti-establishment. It's very much an aesthetic difference.
0: Definitely. And I've worked for a similar-ish company, not tech per se, but within media. And there's a lot of emphasis placed on, oh, we're changing the world. We are the ones making the future of tomorrow. But as you say, the interests are profit, which is the same for most other businesses. And in many cases, ethics are not at the forefront of what is being considered as a metric by which to judge the companies, even though that's allegedly changing now. And I definitely want to get onto that. But before we kind of get too deep into it, I want to go back to the start. Before you became fully immersed and then maybe slightly jaded by the tech world, (laughs) I want to understand why you joined in the first place, because you started your career working within publishing in New York City before moving into the tech industry in Silicon Valley. And those two worlds really seem at odds to me. So I'm curious as to what was the appeal for you of going to work in the tech industry and moving to Silicon Valley?
1: Well, I think that the cynical explanation is that I was successfully marketed to. <laughs> but I, you know, I think for me in my early 20s, I was really just trying to find my place in the world and I was working in book publishing and it felt like the sky was always falling mm. and it was really hard to see a path forward that was independent and sustainable and not precarious. <laughs> I wasn't really interested in tech. It wasn't even really aware of tech, but I was reading The Paris Review blog At work one day. And they had a little item about this startup that had three founders who had raised money for an ebook reading app. And I just really had no idea of the relationship between technology and media and publishing. I was aware of Amazon. I had worked at an independent bookstore in the early 2010s. And so I was aware of that relationship and how stressful it was for publishing and for bookstores. But I didn't know that there was like all this rhetoric of disruption and how predatory a lot of it was and how Mm -hmm. exploitative a lot of it was. So I guess I just want to like emphasize my, my naivete because I really did fall into it backwards.
0: I think at that age, we are all naive, or I certainly was. I think one of the reasons I really enjoyed your book is I felt a lot of parallels between the career decisions I made at that age in my early 20s, where it's like, also, you're just trying to scrape a living. It's all very well to look back at it and think about these kind of lofty ideals and how your career choices fit into a wider ecosystem. But at the time, you're like, oh, this job doesn't fucking pay me. So what am I going to do next? Or at least that's kind of how I looked at things to an extent.
1: Completely. I mean, and for me, I was also thinking I have to have health insurance. I just saw the tech industry as having a lot of opportunity financially. But like for me at the time, I was going to go from making $30,000 a year to $40,000 a year. And that was thrilling. Mm. (laughs) Like that was a very big deal for me. I just saw it as a place where I could get a job that paid me better and like felt a little more sustainable. And I was aware that there were a lot of job opportunities in tech. And this ebook app seemed like a way to sort of bridge my interests, and as you know from the book, it didn't last very long. But <laughs> but I kind of got into the spirit of the industry. I liked the way it felt to be in a workplace with four people and the sense of latitude and control. You know, I, I think that there are a lot of unflattering parallels between my personality and the people that I've written about in the book, and that like I too want autonomy. I too think that I have good ideas of how things should be done, and I was impatient. That's what I mean when I say I was successfully marketed to, because I think that I unwittingly really fell for this narrative that tech was the future and that this was how work should be.
0: Totally. I felt a lot of parallels between your experiences in the tech world from 2013 onwards and me working at Vice, kind of at the same period, 2015. And there's this line in your book quite early on, you say what cynics called a bubble, optimists called the future. And it just really struck me because I feel like working in one of these really hypey companies or almost like frontier industry companies or sectors and going in and not being entirely convinced, but trying to drink the Kool-Aid nonetheless. Like I was curious as to how much you were convinced initially, at least of the
1: value of what you were doing. I think initially I was all in. Maybe at this ebook startup where I really was only an employee for a few months, maybe that less so just because I knew the industry they were sort of trying to disrupt and I felt a little weird about it. But then I went to work for this data analytics company in San Francisco, and I was all in. (laughs) Like, I have very cringy emails in my (laughs) inbox in which I try to recruit friends to come work at this company. And I got pretty far with some of them and actually had like a really, what should have been a come-to-Jesus moment for someone who wasn't so (laughs) impressionable. I had a friend come out and interview for a position, and she felt so insulted by the process and so sort of horrified by some of the people she spoke with. And it made our friendship weird for a little while. Because she was like, how do you work for this person? Like, I felt so disrespected. And I was like, you don't understand. It's really complicated. Yeah, I think when you get into that position, (laughs) probably you're in too deep. But I know what you mean, that the ambivalence. I was really trying to be a believer for longer than I was. You know, I think that I got disillusioned pretty quickly. You know, you're looking around and everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid. And you're like, this Kool-Aid looks weird, but everyone else seems to be liking it. So like, I guess I'll just keep sipping. And you assume you're
0: the problem as well. Well, I certainly did. I was like, they've all bought into this. Like, I must be the problem here. And so you just keep trying. And, you know, if you're a moderately ambitious person and you're told that this is the path to success and this is what we deem valuable, you do keep trying. I think it takes a little while for you to take a step back and think this is just not what I want to be doing. Something that also really struck me, again, the similarities, so you're kind of working in tech, which at that time is just much more of a new industry than it is now when I was working for this new media company, is how the lack of structure and the newness of everything and the lack of systems in place leads to some pretty aggressive cultures. So you talk pretty openly, pretty plainly, about a real boys club Atmosphere within some of the companies you worked at, sexism, a lot of emotional labor, and I was wondering how does that manifest itself day to day, and how did you respond to that? Were you even aware at the time that it was sexist? Because I think sometimes these dynamics are only obvious in hindsight.
1: Yeah. Oh my god, I would love to hear about what that was like. Advice. I mean, I've read you know media coverage of the problems at Vice, but I'm sure it was crazy. I mean, I think it sort of ties into what you were saying. Feeling like you're the problem. Mm. I think that there were a lot of situations that I would, in hindsight, describe as being sexist or otherwise discriminatory, not necessarily against me, but people that I was working with. But Silicon Valley in particular has such a culture of individualism. Mm. And I think that that can manifest in different ways. When I had a manager say to me that a colleague on a team of two (laughs) was strategic and my work was because I loved our customers you know, that's like a really demeaning thing to say to someone who's working very hard for your company. And I really didn't love our customers. I enjoyed speaking with some of them. To me, that's such a gendered framework. So, I mean, that's simple. That's sexism. But obviously that's not in the same category as like sexual harassment or assault or things that did happen at workplaces that I worked in and were much more explicit.
0: No, but at the same time, because again, this is, I had such a similar experience. A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of what I had to deal with was low level. It's like emotional labour. It's undervaluing of your labour. It's being demeaned. It's being treated differently. Thank God didn't ever have to deal with out-and-out sexual harassment or out-and-out sexual assault, which People at Vice definitely did. It's been in the press. But I became aware very early on of almost like a ceiling to my ambition or progress and the way in which I was put on this one track, which is like feminized, and another track was kind of reserved for like the boys. And there was not really anything I can do about it. And so I understand that you are trying to put it in the context of how severe it was in terms of okay, no one is out and out harassing you. But I think actually as women, we can minimize that sort of behaviour and not talk about how much it really does affect your career progression.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I was so inexperienced. I just didn't have a lot of context for it. It was really only when I started talking to coworkers and other women in the industry that I started to understand that these were patterns, that Mm -hmm. it wasn't personal. You know, women who had families who were basically told they couldn't be promoted because they had other outside obligations. Like that's a much clearer example to me of discrimination or it was at the time than Mm. the way that my work was described. And I wonder if there are parallels between your experience and mine in that I was working in customer support in a non-technical role, which is the business side essentially of a startup. And
0: I was an account manager.
1: Right, so you were on the business side of a content operation, and I think in both cases these are considered necessary but outside of the core product, and so Mm -hmm. they're considered lesser work, Yes, which is like a whole other dynamic that is complicated, and I think you'll find that like in tech at least, customer support organizations are more diverse or more women in them than the engineering org, and that's not necessarily because of skill distribution, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. I would imagine it's probably similar.
0: Yeah, account managers, I think they're two-thirds female. So again, it's these kind of feminised sectors or within a specific industry that then they're not paid as well and it, it just becomes a whole mess. But yeah, I can definitely see parallels between our experience. Something I want to touch on actually is kind of the idea of whistleblowing because something that you did in the book in terms of how you wrote it and something that I've definitely seen mentioned in a couple of reviews of your book Is the fact that you did not name specific companies, specific tech companies, but you do describe them in a way that is pretty easy to identify. Like I could kind of tell when you're referring to Amazon or Facebook or whoever within the book. And I'm really, really curious as to why that is. Was that a legal decision or was that a stylistic thing?
1: That was a stylistic decision, and I don't consider myself a whistleblower at all. I I don't think that this is that kind of book. It was a stylistic decision. I think that it's helpful to just remind people what these companies do and what they are because they're so pervasive and there's so much attention on them, and I just think it can sometimes be helpful to walk back and think, okay, Amazon is a very impressive company, and Mm -hmm. also it's like a bargain basement online. I don't think that's how I describe it in the book, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's true.
1: Yeah, you get what I'm going for. But for me, it was also a way of taking some of these companies down a peg, right? Like, so much of the conversation about tech companies has happened on their terms. and Yeah. I felt that it didn't really matter which companies I was writing about or that I had worked for because I was writing about a culture. And I don't think that my experience was universal, but I think that there were qualities of the places where I worked that were extremely common. And it's been very validating to get emails from readers who also work in tech who are like, this exact thing happened to me in my totally unrelated startup (laughs) in 2014. That's sort of what I was getting at with the business model drives the culture, point which is that I think that these patterns do emerge because companies and executives are operating with the same incentives and with very similar backgrounds and experiences or lack thereof Mm.
0: and I know you just said that you don't consider yourself a whistleblower and I definitely do get what you mean I think this book is different to the sort of I think it was Susan Fowler's book or Ellen Powell like where they're very clearly holding certain companies like feet to the fire so to speak but This book is ultimately a negative indictment of the tech industry. And what I'm curious about is the fact that I know it stemmed from an essay that was published on N Plus One, but you were still working in tech at the time when that essay was published. So what was the response like when that came out?
1: It was surprisingly positive. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I got a lot of notes from people I had worked with at that workplace who found it cathartic and amusing And they recognized what I had written about and it was a small enough company, even when I left, it was about 60 people that I knew a lot of my coworkers and we had had conversations about the workplace. And so it wasn't a surprise to me that people recognized it and identified with my account. But what did surprise me is that other people who I never met and never worked with reached out and and said that they had had similar experiences. I mean, again, to your Kool Aid point, so to speak. I think that these are workplaces where it's really hard to say this doesn't feel right. It's really hard to express any hesitation or any maybe disillusionment with what's happening. And so I think that a lot of people felt that they had found that person at the party who's like, this party sucks. (laughs) Let's get out of here and have a cigarette, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, but I wanna back up slightly there. Why is it so hard to call these things out in these companies? What specifically is it about these companies?
1: There are a lot of different things. I mean, I think some of it is like the narrative that these companies tell about themselves. It's the mission. It's this idea that you're doing something new and different and important and world-changing. I think it also has to do with the camaraderie that develops among employees of especially early startups. You feel so personally connected to each other and to the company itself because everything that happens in the company or with the company in the public eye feels directly related to your work, right? Like, you know every single person who worked on a feature or whatever, I think that's a big part of it. You feel like a defector if you Mm. say you don't believe. There's like a tendency to compare startups to cults, and I don't know that that's a completely perfect analogy, but I do think there is this feeling that it's a betrayal if you step back from it. I'm not really answering your question of why that is.
0: No, I I think it does make sense because I think there are definitely some jobs that are a bit more. Actually, if I think about some of my friends who work in more traditional professional careers, maybe they're a lawyer and Companies don't try and use this language of like, oh, we're all a family here. Whereas that happened all the fucking time in every agency that I ever worked at. And it was like, okay, well, family can't fire you. So I don't really see that relationship. But also there is that thing, like you have this phrase that apparently one of your employers used called DFTC, down for the cause. Is that Mm -hmm. right? And I feel like, you know, they... I always felt like within the creative industries, they kind of use this like rhetoric of being like a family to get you invested in the company at the expense of actually being paid properly for your work. But in tech, you are actually paid pretty well. So it's like a slightly different equation. But I do think a lot of companies where the exchange isn't entirely fair between employer and employee, capitalism isn't fair, blah, blah, blah. But like, I think where the imbalance is really great There is often a lot of obfuscation around this kind of family rhetoric to cover it up.
1: Totally. I have friends who've worked in the restaurant industry who've said the same thing. Mm. That's like particularly toxic, that rhetoric.
0: They have family meals. That's what it's called, the pre service meal. It's called like the family meal.
1: Right. And it's usually like a cheaper, simpler version of the food that they're serving all night. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just thinking about what this must have been like at Vice. You're right that it's a different equation when there is less money sloshing around. I mean, I think in in tech, it's really in service of getting people to work and to commit and to put Mm. the the company first. But like, down for the cause, like, God, it's really embarrassing. Like, it's so corny. (laughs) But it's the kind of thing that
0: I would have latched on massively, and especially my early to mid-20s. Like, I would just have, I would have latched on it and it becomes like a company mantra. And I can even picture people, men that I've worked with in the past who, you know, they may not have had that specific phrase, but they definitely had that. Mentality. And also, sometimes I think when you see people who've adopted that mentality rise up the ranks, then you assume that that is the key, when actually it's often a lot of other things, like the fact they're just like a white male who gets on well with the CEO and gets tapped on the shoulder. And something you actually said earlier about how tech can be really individualistic really caught my attention because. I feel like tech is one of those industries where everyone pretends as though everything is a meritocracy, and it's really not. What do you think? Of
1: oh, that? God. <laughs> Yeah, the meritocracy fetish is really out of control. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a story that tech has been telling about itself for decades. And if you work at any of these companies that are particularly committed to that idea of meritocracy, as I did, you know, I worked at GitHub and there was a rug, and this is a longer story, but the company I worked for, GitHub, had a sort of waiting room that was a replica of the Oval Office. And for a while, there was a, a big rug in the middle that had the company mascot, and it said, I believe in meritocracy we trust. And so this was an open source you know, software development platform. And so mm-hmm. it kind of tied into the ethos of the open source software world. But I think that anytime you have a culture that purports to be a meritocracy and the people running the show and making the most money from it or profiting the most from it are young white men or white men who went to Ivy League colleges or Stanford, I think that that should immediately raise eyebrows. Mm-hmm. A lot of smart people. There are white men who are smart. I'm not saying there aren't. <laughs> But they're certainly not.
0: They don't have a monopoly on smartness, <laughs> how it would appear if you were to walk through one of these silicon... It's like, hmm, it's really yeah. funny how all the smartest people are also white and male. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> I want to move on slightly and talk a little bit about the craft of writing the book, because it's also such an exquisitely written book, I should say that. It's also very funny. I really enjoyed reading it, and I really whipped through it. And I was curious as to how you approach the writing of it, like, how did you organize your thoughts? And how did you decide what stories to include and what to leave out in order to kind of illustrate the points that you're clearly trying to make?
1: (laughs) How did I organize my thoughts? (laughs) Chaotically. It became very clear early on that the only way I would be able to write the book was chronologically. It is a memoir, but it's not a super personal book. It doesn't start in my childhood. Like, the first time I used an Apple computer, you know, it's not that kind of (laughs) memoir. (laughs) (laughs) But there were incidents that stood out in my mind that I knew I wanted to write about that felt representative of my experience in Silicon Valley. And then I also did a little bit of research on myself by going back through emails and text messages and talking to friends and interviewing coworkers You know, I had all of this material, like this digital stuff that had happened in my life. And because work and life were so blended for a while, you know, it wasn't weird for me to call a former colleague and be like, hey, can I come over and like sit in your kitchen and interview you for a few hours about what you remember from our time working at this company and what you remember of me at that time. Mm. And so things emerged from that that were interesting. So mostly it was like writing out different scenes that I remembered and then researching them, talking to other people, building it out. There are some people in the book who I knew I wanted to include as characters because they felt I wanted to make a point with them in certain ways. And they have very specific ways of speaking. So I went and recorded conversations and used quotes from conversations that happened later. Mm because I wanted them to be representative and accurate in terms of how people present themselves and speak. But I would say that the hardest part was really knowing where to end it, although okay. that seemed, that was like obvious to some people who worked on the book and not to me. <laughs> there are like 15 false endings to Uncanny Valley in a box in my closet. Oh, really?
0: Because, but... I mean, it feels very natural <laughs> that it ended where it did, but, I mean, what were the alternatives?
1: Well, see, you have good editorial instincts. I do not. <laughs> I, don't know I never that. know <laughs> where things end or how to organize information. Enough happened in 2017 and 2018 when I was still writing the book. I wanted to include the sort of political shifts that were happening in the industry. And mm. I wanted to be a little more analytical about those last few years and it just didn't work. There was more to say, but it felt way too present and it already felt like flying too close to the sun to write about 2016 and 2018, you know?
0: Yeah, I think there is something to be said for presenting a memoir very much as you observed or experienced it at the time. And it's tempting to go back and editorialize with the benefit of a bit of hindsight, with the benefit of a bit of experience, to overlay your 2021 self's observations onto what was happening in 2017 or 2018. But I do think there is a real value in just capturing a specific moment in time and capturing a specific mindset. And there are different types of memoirs, but also when you're writing something that is coming out so soon after the fact, and, you know, this isn't a memoir about the 2010s tech industry that's being published in 20 years time. It's being published as it's happening. So I think it's good for it to not be super over analytical. And it is analytical, but it also invites people to kind of make up their own mind and it doesn't spoon feed like to perform their own analysis on what you presented.
1: I hope so. <laughs> I mean, you. that's
0: that's just um, my justification for there being no analysis in my forthcoming memoir. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Something I also really loved about the book, but also kind of simultaneously made my toes curl up cringing as I read it was how perfectly you captured that sort of corporate speak that's endemic in certain offices and especially businesses where I guess we like marketing and products and consumers are like a core part of the day-to-day. I went through and like highlighted a few and then I was like ah this is cringing me out too much but words <laughs> like disrupt and strategize at scale and add value and rocket ship and I think it was Molly Young who wrote a brilliant article for New York Magazine a while back where she calls it garbage language and she talks about being asked to like parallel path things and it's like everyone does it everyone apparently kind of loathes it Why do we
1: do it regardless? What's your take? It's a certain currency. I think that it is a way of expressing participation in the in group. Mm. And just to go back just a a tiny bit, I feel a little bad that I so reductively was like, white men, haha. But the real issue with the meritocracy stuff is that when you say that there's no power structure except for merit, that there's no organizational structure for how people rise the ranks or whatever in a business, it just means that people can't see how those paths are carved. It means that personal relationships determine who gets a promotion or who gets a salary twice that of their colleague. Mm. And I think that the speech and the sort of like currency of jargon actually has a lot to do with that. It's comportment, right? It's like the people who know how to communicate in the way that is respected or understood or considered legitimate are the people who will succeed in a company. But you also have to know how to use that language. Like, I mm. remember that before I started working at the first startup that I worked at in New York. A friend of mine who worked in advertising was like, if you get stuck and you feel in over your head, just ask about strategy. And I literally did this. I was such a little idiot. I would go into meetings, I would have no idea what they were talking about, in part because I had no concept of how you talked about a business, and in part because they were using jargon, so I didn't know what was going on there either. And I would just be like, so what would you say is our strategy? Uh, but it sounds <laughs> like, good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's sort of. It's sounds so, mean, it sounds convincing. like nothing. <laughs> it's
0: so, but also it's like, I feel like if somebody asks me what the strategy is, I then feel like I'm put on the spot and need to come up with something succinct and clever. And I do sometimes get the impression that people are, you know, again, kind of obfuscating the fact that they don't know what the fuck is going on. And so they use <laughs> these terms and, you know, and then it's like no one knows what's going on. But I think one of the things that, used to get used a lot when I was working advertising certainly advice everything would be hyper and it'd be like snackable content so it you're like hyper snackable content <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not the ridiculous That's thing you've ever heard in your life so but I was like who knows what this means but it's like that Kanye West song it's like nobody knows what it means but it gets the people going like it's just <laughs> anyway I'm definitely going on a vice bashing tangent I want to talk a bit about ethics because that is obviously a huge concern and question when we look at the tech industry today. I don't get the impression it was as much of a concern when you were working in the tech industry, but it is thanks to various scandals. Thank you, Cambridge Analytica. You know, a lot of people are looking at the tech industry and and also like the chickens are coming home to roost. Now we're all realising that, oh, actually, Instagram makes me feel really depressed to be on eight hours a day, but it's also very cleverly engineered to make me want to spend eight hours a day and to get that dopamine hit and the things that were smart about it there were no boundaries put in there were no caps put in nobody thought what are the possible negative effects of making people want to spend four hours a day on our specific app is that good for society and I would love to understand both from your own personal view how you kind of regarded it And also more generally is what responsibilities do you think individuals have when they're working for tech companies that either do unethical things or whose products can be harmful, be used in ways that are harmful? Where do you see the individual responsibility lie?
1: Mm, That's a really interesting question, because I think you're making a really smart distinction between the conversation about ethics that involve customers and the conversation about ethics that involves employees. I think that the conversation about consumers and the ethics of technology that might exploit or manipulate consumers, I would say that that conversation has become more mature. It's developed over the years. My own take on it sort of depends on what we're talking about specifically, whether we're talking about attention economy apps, or we're talking about extractive supply chains, or we're talking about contracts with ICE or whatnot. But I think in terms of the employee experience, like what is the responsibility of the employee at a company that's doing unethical things. I mean, I think it can be incredibly intimidating. These are companies that, in many, maybe most cases, are not accountable to anyone. Like, Mm -hmm. for a lot of them, circumventing the law is the business model, initially. That's the strategy, as you might Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, I think that these are not companies that are necessarily asking who does this benefit and who does it harm, but just will this benefit us? So I think that as an employee, it can be really daunting. I also think if you were to survey employees of, let's say, Facebook, which Is just, I think I'm using that as shorthand for a company that has had a lot of different problems, whether that's like exacerbating a genocide or contributing to like loneliness and jealousy or whatever. Mm. If you were to survey employees, I think it would be surprising how many people felt that the company was a net positive for society. I don't think that there are a lot of people at these companies who feel that what they're doing is necessarily harmful. I also just don't think it's incumbent on the individual to change an entire corporation. I think that that's partly why collective action and some of the unionization efforts we're seeing in tech have been so interesting and exciting. And they give me a lot of hope for what might be possible in changing the direction of a company culture of a, maybe even of a business's objectives. But I mean, I don't want to be too idealistic about that. I just think it's lonely and hard to try to change a company on your own.
0: You said just a second ago that you've seen the conversation around, you know, the ethics of the tech industry mature in recent years. The conversation is very telling, but have you actually seen any technical change and changes in the way businesses operate in the past few years, because I think it's one thing to have endless panel discussions and think pieces about what the tech industry needs to do differently. We can all do that. But are you seeing existing mature tech companies put in new safeguards? Are you seeing new tech companies that are emerging have those ethical considerations built into That platforms from the get go. Is anything actually changing?
1: I don't know. I don't want to overstate my expertise (laughs) on the matter. It's hard for me to say, but I do want to maybe push back a little bit on what you're saying about these panels and anyone can write a think piece. I actually do think that that matters, especially in an industry like tech and in Silicon Valley where the job market is so competitive, by which I mean companies are competing for employees. Mm -hmm. And so if the conversation is shifting and employees are a part of that conversation, or at least they're observing that conversation. I do think that people come to expect certain things in their workplaces, and that becomes like a forcing function for that workplace to offer it or to change. I think employees have an unbelievable amount of leverage. I guess as a writer, <laughs> I have to think this. So like let's I'll call out my own bias. I think, I mean, A, I'm probably more of a natural cynic, but
0: B, I kind of just look at what has happened or the way the media industry often works, which can feel like media companies reporting on each other and then things ultimately not changing. Like I, I kind of think of a lot of the conversations about race that have been happening within media within the last year. And certainly there have been some figureheads who have been deposed almost, if you want to think about it that way. And there is a big scandal every other week. You know, I think it was Bon Appetit recently and then it was Reply All. But I feel like fundamentally the numbers aren't changing or the structures, the way these companies are built to reward certain sorts of people aren't changing or certainly aren't changing fast enough. And so I'm overlaying that insight onto tech. But I totally take what you're saying that within tech, that it has a very different effect.
1: Mm. Well, I wonder if in the media... Some part of that is people don't have the kind of leverage at their companies that they might in an industry that was booming, right? Like media is constricting. So mm. people, I think, are much more fearful for their job opportunities oh, and they might be otherwise. That's very true. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying though, and I, I have to think about it because I do think that a lot of people in media can be solipsistic <laughs> and <laughs> I do wonder like what are the useful interventions, right?
0: Right. How do
1: you change a newsroom? I think people have ideas about that, and I'm probably not the best person to ask. So I should probably stop talking about it.
0: I think my final question, actually, for you, I'm so curious about this answer, but I'm really wondering what your relationship with the internet and, I guess, social media, but the internet in general, is like now. And do you think it's in any way different for the fact that you've worked in tech, like if you compare it to your non-tech friends? Are you super tight on your privacy and data and that sort of thing? How do you use the internet?
1: I think that I use the internet more or less like any other person. I'm like, I would say probably average in terms of my privacy. And I don't feel that I'm particularly paranoid, although I probably shouldn't admit that. <laughs> <the> podcast. Um, <laughs> but I definitely am sort of insufferable when it comes to like new startups and new products and Direct to consumer company, stuff like that. Like, I'm always looking up who funded this, like who invested in this company, who's benefiting from my purchase or whatever, which is like, I don't even know that I believe in like ethical consumption. So I don't know what I'm doing. It's hard for me to separate the economy from my experience of the industry. Yeah. I am a little bit wary of putting myself on the internet, but that's not really about data collection. It's just more. Just feeling like I've already given too much of myself away to the internet and definitely publishing a book and doing publicity for it and writing has like blown that up. But before this, I really kept a low profile online mm-hmm. and really liked it that way. That like, if you Google image searched me, you didn't have a photo of my face. Like that to me was such a luxury. And now I just feel like I'm a lot out there, which has just taken some getting used to. But I'm wary of new products and of new social networks, stuff like that. But I think I'm very normal. (laughs) I think I'm very boring. I'm sorry. I wish I had a cool answer for you. I think in a way
0: that's quite reassuring to know because I think if you were like – oh, having been inside the belly of the beast, I don't actually use the internet now because of what I know. I'd be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm kind of glad to know that you just use the internet in much the same way as the rest of us. Well, anyway, Anna, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. This has been really, really fascinating. And thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do you make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money, and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegi That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost.